welcome everyone to uh, the next iteration of our ongoing series where uh, me and Dylan will be reading and breaking down uh, the book, Building the New Economy, Data is Capital. This is effectively a uh, uh, electronic book club. This week, we are on to chapter eight, which is uh, focused on fractional banking versus scenario banking and how that ties in with uh, the issuance and use of a fiat-backed digital coin. Uh, this chapter really describes uh, the concept, like I said, of the fiat-backed digital coin, and it marries it with the idea of a narrow bank, which uh, we'll, we'll flesh out, we'll define a little bit as we talk about this stuff. But it outlines an approach to increase this fiat-backed digital coin, the acceptability and circulation uh, from initially what would be a small set of sponsors to a, a wider but still limited group of potential users, like small and medium-sized uh, companies and enterprises, and maybe even some individuals. Really, in short, uh, the idea is to apply distributed ledger technology, which is proliferating over the last several years, uh, to give a new lease on life to the old concept of a narrow bank and to use a narrow bank as the glue, the centerpiece at the heart of a digital ecosystem. Because if this is designed properly, which is what this chapter attempts to do, then this narrow bank concept uh, can be used for several related purposes. And, and again, the focus here is on the issuance of that fiat-backed uh, digital coin. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's a pretty good overview of what the chapter covers. There, like I said, there, there's two main concepts, the narrow bank and the digital coin. So I don't know if you had somewhere you want to start, Dylan, but uh, I guess, why don't we start with the fiat-backed digital coin? I think that'll probably be the... Uh, most familiar concept for anyone listening to to grasp because effectively, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems this is just uh, a stable coin issued formally uh, by uh, an institution, in this case, either a narrow bank connected to the Fed. So really what we're talking about is just a different version of a stable coin, right? Yeah, totally. So I think the concept of the fiat, the fiat backed digital coin, FBDC, is just a coin that's backed by a basket of assets, right? I mean, you, you basically have a, a yeah. an asset mix of central bank cash and other non-operating assets like currencies or maybe stocks or something. Um, but I mean, as the name suggests, fiat-backed digital coins. So you would be able to use a mix of currencies. and the I just want to illuminate a little bit the term of, of what is a narrow bank. And so we have to talk a little bit. I think the sure. the chapter does a lot of con comparison between a narrow bank versus a fractional reserve bank, which is essentially how our, our financial system globally across centuries and countless civilizations has been fractional banking. And there's a lot of problems with that. I think that are intuitive to understand, mm -hmm. but I, I, they made the comment about how we, we've tried so many times to pivot from a fractional system to a narrow banking system where mm -hmm. it's perfect alignment, right? The, the idea of narrow banking is perfect alignment between the assets and the liabilities. You're not depositing out, you're not lending out deposits that you don't have. You're not printing money out of thin air as a 
credit institution, not I'm talking I'm not talking about a central bank, but when you know banks, commercial banks lend out the deposits of other users, it's it's it can it creates instability. And so the the issue really is around, I think, financial stability broadly in the ecosystem. Um when we talk about narrow versus fractional. Yeah. And so with a narrow system, you can use these fiat backed digital coins where the actual the currency itself is just like you said, a stable coin. It's pegged and it's backed up by something. Mm-hmm. It's actually, you know, the, the the comparison I think is when you think about the old gold standard when the money was backed by gold. So I, it's very similar, mm-hmm. I thought, to to that when we talk about a narrow system using a fiat backed coin it's it's there was a big like parallel i thought to to the old gold standard is that off base or is that right yeah 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 it would we're it's very similar you're using so so with a narrow bank um the uh um the assets and liabilities are perfectly aligned so like you said you know the the with fractional reserve your assets and liabilities aren't your short-term liabilities are your deposits. And then you have long-term assets of these long-term loans that you make. So that mismatches that inherent risk. But yeah, like you said, with the narrow bank, the, the assets that you would have, you know, uh, backing up these digital coins, um, right. They, they might've been gold at one point, but, um, now they're, uh, they're just money. They're, they're the fiat currency. So, yeah, what's interesting is that you can use, I, I mean, the, the way that crypto is tied in here is not only a digital ledger, but you have the actual infrastructure that's processing the transactions, right? So they, they talk about the SWIFT system, I think. I mean, that that was created in the 70s. It's, it's ancient technology. And so if you have a, a digital ledger powered by a validator model, it's a lot more efficient. It's faster, it's somewhat more transparent, and it's just better technology. So Yeah, I think that's an important point because maybe people have heard there, uh, we keep saying uh, fiat-backed digital coin, but a lot of, you'll see a lot of references in the news about a central bank digital currency. And there is an important distinction here because the authors note that that is an option. And it's one that's been talked about, which is having the central bank issue their own digital currency, the, the Fed having direct control. And what they talk about is that becomes very um, unrealistic very quickly. Imagine the Fed being in charge of all these know your customer and anti-money laundering regulations of everyone. Even if for argument's sake, we say that every single person in America was set up with their own checking and savings account directly at the Fed, which is really the only way that the Fed could swing their own central bank digital currency. The Fed is not going to want to go through hundreds of millions of individuals. And, and and then on top of that, all the institutions and businesses verify identities, uh, maintain all of the just regulations that go along with that. They're, they're just not going to do that. They're not built for it. And that's why, um, yeah, this idea of having a narrow bank or, or right now, this is why regular old commercial banks handle all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, the, as much as the Fed may want to issue their own type of currency, their digital currency, 
I just don't see them be doing it directly. I, I think it has to take some form of this fiat-backed digital coin, whether it's through a narrow bank or commercial banks. Um, they're going to need some intermediary to do it on their behalf. And, and I think this is a pretty good setup. Yeah, so two thoughts. Number one, I mean, China's working on their central banking currency. We'll see how it goes. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there will be a live example of it. It's a tool for central planning. And I think most of us as Westerners right. are more free market capitalists. So, you know, I, I'm i nervous about this the, the central bank a currency that the, the Chinese are working on because you could essentially, they'll be able to really try to disrupt the dollar's role as a reserve currency, I think, with, with that. Now, that's one thing. The other thing I want to highlight is a little differentiation between when we talk about a narrow bank versus a commercial bank, what are the differences? It, I think the commercial bank is essentially the fractional reserve banking. Our traditional banks mm-hmm. that we have today in the world lending out deposits and such, right? So this this is important because the the pros list, why is the narrow bank good kind of thing? I mean, they really are strong proponents about this in the book. Number one, you have a natural repository of funds for those who value the stability of their funds. I mean, I think all of us are trying to make sure that we're in a bank that's not going to default you know, we don't really have bank runs like we used to in a hundred years ago. So that's a good thing, but we need to make sure that stability continues with whatever system we're using. So that's kind of like the old, I think my takeaway was that was kind of the overarching goal of this narrow banking system was just stability. And then I think, well, yeah. furthermore, you know, it's how do you have a system that is sustainable and by having that perfect alignment between assets and liabilities, I mean, a, a, a coin or a currency that's actually backed by something, it, it makes sense. I have some questions about this, though, because it, it, you know, my question is, like, how many narrow banking currencies would there be in an ideal system? Before, wasn't it uh, wildcat banking or something that they, when, like, regions of the states had their own currencies like back in the 1800s like i just oh, yeah. i can't help but thinking about that when we were when i was reading this like, yeah mm-hmm. but i guess as you said they're not they're not completely disintermediating the central bank so well i think i think it's fair to, to also point out that back in the 1800s uh the federal government wasn't nearly the the powerful centralized entity it is today. So, um, and our financial system wasn't as developed. So, so yeah, I think it kind of made maybe a little more sense to have those regional alternate currencies, but I, I can't imagine a scenario where let's just say that they went full bore with this narrow banking system uh, to, you know, they'd be operating in a very public regulated space. I, I think it's fair to say, you know, the central, the, the federal would be like, look, here at narrow banks, you're using, you're using our, our digital currency. The, the dollar currency, the, the e-dollar, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so Right. Well, they talk, they talk about it. They, they make the comparison of like cars and electric cars coexisting with gasoline cars. So initially, if mm-hmm. the system were to somehow go live, it would be, you know, baby steps, I think. Like just how the penetration of electric cars has slowly and steadily grown. Um, I think if you were yeah. to talk about this in a really simple like bullet point or infographic with 
people on the street, they would be like, yeah, why, why wouldn't you do this? You know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good point. Like this is the pitch is that right now when you deposit money at a bank, most of it's lended out and only a small fraction is kept as reserve. And there's risk there that that's the inherent risk in the financial system. Well, that's one of them. Whereas with the narrow bank, yeah, you, you, you know, you're depositing it somewhere and, and it's holding on to that money. Like it's, it's, it's keeping it. So there's a measure of safety there that you just can't really say exists. And, and yeah, I think that'd be a very powerful message for just regular old people. Uh, and, and another angle on this because i was thinking about the same thing too like how how would people accept this and i think they'd be very accepting also because we already have multiple different kinds of banking credit unions exist um you know traditional banks uh i, I would even throw in payday loan uh shops that i'm not a big fan of they have their you know they exist though and people use them so these alternative banking um institutions companies like people are used to having alternatives so pitching them a new one and then based on, you know, basing your pitch on this is a measure of safety you just can't get with your deposits. Uh, yeah, I think people would be receptive um, and it can totally coexist with the existing um, in the environment. So, yeah, I think it's. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, then, they, you know, they talk about it, right, because if you had the system, I mean, you would theoretically be able to give depositors more interest as well. So you'd have a f actually much more competitive banking system because right now you put a dollar in a savings account and you earn 20, you earn nothing basically. So this would be a way to, because mm -hmm. those, the banks that we use today, they just immediately take what you deposit and go do a bunch of stuff with it and they make a bunch of money and they don't pass any of it along to you. That's, that's, I think why when they talked about the, they, there was a group of people trying to make this, change happened in the u.s in the 40s and they couldn't they couldn't face the enormous pressure from the fractional banking system because they make too much money doing it so this is the perfect mantra for for what right. the crypto movement is trying to do trying to really make the system fit i mean it's it's the classic story you have a monolithic enterprise getting disrupted by better technology that captures part of the value chain and makes it more efficient. So, so the monoliths of the past can no longer earn their their monopolistic returns because somebody's coming in, some system, some protocol. It's an open source disruption. Um, I think it makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you. I well, don't know how you actually transition, so but I think it just makes too much sense. But I think, I think like we talked about, you could, you could start this on like a, kind of like a lot of the concepts we've been talking about in this book. Uh, not all of them. Some of them are so disruptive, you would almost need to abolish the existing system. But this is an example of something that could exist on a small scale and, and grow if it had the support and there wasn't reckless competition to, you know, to tear it down, like historically has happened. Uh, you, I think you'd really need the federal government to, to maybe even protect it right away, just, just to get it off the ground. Um, but, but, but the, I guess the one question I have is like you had mentioned, there is a, the reason there's been temptation in the past to go from a narrow bank to a fractional reserve system is because it's more profitable that an interest margin can be very lucrative. At least it traditionally has been. So with a narrow bank, 
since you're not lending out those deposits and making money off of them, I just do wonder how, how you're going to make money there. Uh, because my immediate reaction is, well, you're probably going to have to charge higher transaction fees because you know, you're, you're going to have to make money somehow, even with your operation being much more efficient. Because I think this bears repeating, narrow banks don't lend. So lending activity is completely outsourced to lending companies. And that's a pretty radical change from the existing system. But uh, to bring it back, you know, I, I just, that's one of the questions I have is, is, is a narrow bank really, like, could that stand on its own? Or would it need constant uh, subsidy support, uh, regulatory support? Would it effectively need to be, uh, you know, uh, owned and run by the government? And that might turn some people off. Um, I don't know, but the issue of sustainability, profitability of a narrow bank is just one question I still have. Yeah. And the, the concept that the, the pitch they make in the book is there's lower capital requirements for a narrow bank, right? Because you're, you're aligning your liabilities and assets, mm-hmm. and then you have, you have lower operating costs because the client infrastructure is much more efficient than having a bunch of people do a bunch of stuff you remove the executive pay, it's just cheaper to, to do. But then again, you, you hit the nail on the head, I think, with it's generating money through transaction fees, which, which can be significant mm-hmm. when you're talking about Forex, foreign currency exchange, and then crypto. I mean, that's where yeah. there's, real, it- there's real money to, to take when you're talking about a percentage of size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why it it probably has more allure to large institutions that have frequent international payments. Whereas for you and me, if we we're just spending money like in our credit card, we might find a narrow transaction fees to be burdensome and ridiculous compared to traditional banking. But um, but you know the book says that it says this is probably for for specific users um, that can actually. Uh, like large institutions, uh, actually large banks themselves. So, uh, and I yeah. have a question. This is this is Max, by the way. I, I just had a question. Kind of, do you think that the, I guess the cost savings and the, I guess the increase in, in rate you'd receive from the cost savings, uh, do you think that offset the increased swap or I guess the fees? Because for most people, I think. No one wants to deposit in a bank right now and get almost no interest. But if you're offering a more reasonable interest rate, people might be more willing to deal with those fees. I'm frankly pretty reluctant to say that. I just let's say that you're a narrow bank and you're given $100 million and you can't lend that out at you know 3% for mortgages. You can't lend that out at 5% for auto loans. Uh, you can't create revolving lines of credit that might be in the low single digits. All you can invest in is cash and cash equivalents. Now, there are other versions of um, narrow banks that are listed in the book that are slight deviations on this. But generally speaking, this the whole pitch of this is that the money you deposit is as safe as safe can be. So you're going to have to put that money in safe as safe can be interest yielding assets, which right now money market rates are, <laughs> I mean, they're barely above zero. So I do wonder. I guess my entire response is in context of the U.S. dollar. 
But I just I do wonder where the excess yield would come from with like, where are you going to put this money to maintain safety and increase yield? It just um, I mean, I know traditional banks, one that I work for. Yeah, they're not paying much on deposits. They but yeah, I just don't know how much more you could juice that without taking on a a decent amount of risk, which undermines. Right, right. And that's. That's a good point too, because I guess I didn't consider that, like you said, you're not able to make risky investments with the deposits. Therefore, it's hard to offer that higher rate because um, your return is not as high. So that that is definitely something I didn't consider. So it almost makes it seem like you need a kind of a blend, like you were mentioning, um, you know, a narrow bank with giving it a little bit of flexibility to loan, ideally, just so it could make a little more aggressive investments to. To make basically supplement that interest to make it worth it, but again, now you're getting away from the idea of that kind of perfect offset between your assets and liabilities, mm-hmm. or at least risk-wise. Yeah, yeah. I would say instead of thinking about diversifying risk within a narrow bank, keep the narrow bank exactly how it was intended. But again, going back to that, this is probably a service right away for large economic actors who have might be doing millions, if not billions of dollars in business. Maybe they want a billion dollars in a narrow bank and they want the other $10 billion in a traditional bank or some other area. Uh, you know, this doesn't have to be uh, an all in kind of, kind of thing. It doesn't have yeah. to serve all purposes to all people. It can, it can still be, you know, what its name is, a narrow bank doing one thing very, very well. And that's stability and confidence. Yeah. And I mean, this takes away, some of the require some of the activities from these uninsured lending affiliates. So if those other companies no longer need to provide the utility like transaction services, or if, if we have this other group of institutions that can handle that part alone, because it's, it's more efficient, it's cheaper because of the system that they are using it, right? The, the digital ledger, and the the fact that that's all they do is transactions. Yeah, they don't need. They can get away with uh, having a lower operating margin on their business because that's all they do, and it doesn't cost much to run it. So you you kind of take some of that off of the plate of the other guys, and let them focus on the traditional and hopefully innovative things that they can do in the credit finance world. You. You kind of, it, it's a way of having a more mm-hmm. stable system as a whole. So yeah. I think like we're, yeah. we shouldn't be so concerned about the profit margins of the narrow banks or the profit margins of the traditional banks. Like as, as individuals, as retail type of people here on this call, it's more about like, how do you build a system that's more competitive, that benefits our society? And you're not just using Chinese control communist control you're, you're actually using a free market that's right. still capitalist so and I think well let's go back go ahead i just you can go back to i it's not glass steagall what was the act that, that for a while banks were able to essentially invest the money that they had like they were able to speculate with it with it and and now they can't i i forget when that went away but it, it's just Banks have to have grown where they provide so many services nowadays. And yes, it's been sold as look, look at the efficiency this can be done with, but maybe that's just not the best way to do it. Just because it's efficient and profitable for a bank uh, 
there's a case we made that that also undermines the collective stability of the system. So here, you know, maybe it's, maybe it really is for the best if we just have a type of bank, a narrow bank that takes deposits and keeps them safe. And then we have all of lending going on through these uh, other lending institutions that, you know, in order for them to to get assets to lend out, they have to go out and they have to find investors. And I love this idea because instead of just everyone's deposits, which are frankly just a few thousand dollars here and there of people's money that are living paycheck to paycheck, being grouped together to make riskier loans, why don't we have people who are ready to put money at risk explicitly, have them risk their money? Lending can still go on. It's just you're not using essential savings and demand deposits to do that. You're you're using investor money, investors who are willing to risk that money, risk it all. And I just think it's a better match of risk tolerance because I think while people know that when you put money in a bank, it's lent out, I I just think that most people just assume it's still like sitting there. It'll always be there because you gave them your money. Of course, it's going to be there. So yeah, I I like this idea because it, it separates those activities. But Tonight are rubbing our hands together at the thing you said about let the people with the risk appetite face the risks that they want. So exactly, uh, mm-hmm. exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head. Because then you don't need federal. Every time you go in a bank, you see those stickers everywhere that says you're deposit insured up to a quarter million dollars. Right. You don't. Yeah, see. You're not funding these risky ventures. It's someone who is prepared to lose that money that can do it. It's it's uh, yeah. I think it just makes more sense, but. Which, yeah, imagine imagine if you had more than 250000 in that bank, how many people are aware that they're not insured beyond that, you know, if something were to happen? I bet you, I would say, mm-hmm. I don't want to throw out a number because it's pure speculation, but I'd say a majority of people have no clue that their money could actually just go missing and they wouldn't even be covered to get it back. Yeah, and then think about what actually, what if something did, crazy did happen? Great. So how's the FDI, who, I don't know enough about the FDIC, but... How are we going to replace all the money if if someone was able to steal a bunch a, a, a billion dollars? How, how do you just replace it? How, where does the money come from? Do, do you just have to mint more? I think I would imagine they have a reserve for this because I would the infinite reserve that can just be refilled whenever they want. I'm sure. Right? I'm sure it's a another sounds like a, fund. Sounds like a sustainable way to to be ready for problems. Yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure. If you have 500 grand in a demand deposit, I'm sure the thought you understand it intellectually, but I'm sure most people are like, that's not going to happen. But it kind of did. There were a lot of banks in 2008 that went under. They were regional banks. And I don't know how many people actually lost money, uh, but, uh, you know, just regular demand deposits. I don't know how many people actually lost track of the money. I think the federal government did step in and they're like, well, okay, okay, hold on. Well, <laughs> we're not going to let a trillion dollars disappear on people, but, um, but yeah, I don't think a lot of people really take that seriously I, I, because it doesn't seem realistic. Well, yeah. And then, I mean, to be fair, they made this comment. They, they talked about after a wait, they there is a lot. There's a lot of regulations, the Volcker rule, the capital requirements for the banks. They have to have the huge cap, cash cushion that they have. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you can argue that things are relatively much more stable and look look pretty solid compared to what it used to look like. But I mean, uh, yeah. let's use a system that doesn't require 
you know, some, some adult to be babysitting. Well, and it does seem like a fundamental flaw that people don't have really the choice, right? Like in today's society, you need a place to put your money. Uh, you can't really just like put it in a safe. So you have to go through a bank pretty much. And if they're basically telling you, no matter what bank you go to, we're going to do whatever we want with your money and you're going to get whatever rate we decide. That's just not a very good dis- you know position to be in as a consumer because you really don't have much say or leverage and they're using your money. Um, so it's one of those things where it's putting it back into the actual people who have the money, giving them the option to put up their money as you know liquidity or provide to loan out. It's that should be on the person with the money who owns it, and they should reap the benefits. And I think most people agree with that. I just don't think many people understand that this is even happening at a bank. I don't think they realize they're getting a bad rate because the bank's paying you know all these you know overhead costs and everything that comes with running a bank. It's disruptable. The whole the whole system is highly disruptable, and that's that's what crypto is doing is disrupting that. It's opening eyes, I think, to ways to make money um, that have always been happening. Just it's kind of been out of our sight because it's been happening through institutions, um, so you don't hear about it much or realize what they're doing to generate this cash. So that is definitely something that opened my eyes. So- yeah, and so so this is, I think, a good point to bring it all back to why why is this idea necessary? Why we already have stable coins? Why don't if I just want to uh, if I want a coin that's pegged to the dollar, um, you know, it's already available. There's there's a million stable coins out there, right? Um, and, and I think the the authors were pretty clear that this setup has been proposed. It, it's a very safe one because it's using certain people. It's including certain people in these narrow bank fiat backed digital coin environment um and it's really meant to be an entry point because as they exist now there are too many flaws with existing stable coins um too many flaws with cryptocurrencies like bitcoin to really allow them to be used and embraced in the wider financial system and they list some you know transaction number of transactions that can be carried out um uh the amount of energy required kind of the usual criticisms but um this idea is really meant to be um, in addition to all, you know, the cryptocurrency space, the unregulated space that we usually talk about. All of these different systems can, can coexist to just build acceptability of these concepts of these technologies to the public. Yeah. I want to add, I want to add something to that. So, I mean, <laughs> in the chapter, they talk about what would this system look like in actuality, like if it was built and if if you use these narrow banks in society and they, they do talk about Ripple's technology. Now, this is not mm-hmm. these narrow banks and this infrastructure is not they're not arguing that should be a completely decentralized world where people are running the valid individual unknowns out there are running validators. I mean, they are, they make the very clear case the validators would be basically notaries there would be a known list of people that's they're borrowing heavily from the ripple system and they talk about it but i mean i think what's lost on a little this is mm-hmm. a little bit beside the point but the ripple technology itself is is interesting but like you don't really gain direct exposure of that through owning the ripple token so there's two different things whenever that 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 topic is very controversial but you do have to acknowledge that the uh, the Ripple technology is interesting, but it kind of is a way that can fit into the centralized world of known actors where you know who exactly is running the different nodes 
around the country, the list of people. So it's mm-hmm. um, to your point. I just wanted to add that color because you started talking about the the way they mentioned the different cryptocurrencies and projects. Well, it's interesting because when you get back to that, aren't you essentially getting back to the same system that we're trying to kind of overhaul? I mean, you're back to having centralized people, which are like an institution who are the validators. The, the only difference is that I guess you're putting up your money and or your fiat and getting rewarded for it in terms of better rates. But are you really, like you said, if you're not getting exposure, isn't isn't Ripple basically doing the same thing the banks were? <laughs> well, so yes and no. Um, this would be this would basically be a proof of stake network running narrow banks where the list of validators. Think about the right. like secret network. Yeah. You have seventy validators. We we in general know who they are mm-hmm. by a, a maybe a pseudonym, mm-hmm. but this would be much more regulated than the way decentralized proof of state networks work. So they're talking about using just like the the computer software, mm-hmm. if it were to simplify it, that Ripple has created, okay. where their whole infrastructure is incre- incredibly, like the Ripple system, the token, the way that thing trades is very centralized. Yeah. Because it's, and that's a common criticism of the thing. But the technology, I mean, if you look at what they've done, they do have a lot of central banks that have signed on to use it as a replacement for SWIFT. Right. So that is interesting. And I think that people assume that because there's product market fit with that technology, that it's going to accrue to the Ripple token. But those, <laughs> those, those infrastructures are using like private rails that we yeah. don't have exposure to. So, so to your point, it's, this would be a validator kind of network that if you if you or I have the collateral to to go set up a validator, it's kind of I mean this, this is in effect what is happening with a lot of proof of stake networks right now that are decentralized more, but there there is a common criticism for for proof of stake networks out there that because of you know the rich get richer in a lot of those because if you have to have money to to do a validator and that's how you make your revenue to participate in the network versus when, you know, Bitcoin started, you could just run a node in your, in your room. Right. So I think it's important to realize like, this is not, this is not the fruition of the decentralized idealism. This is more so using the digital ledger technology in a way that does things. But see, the thing is if you use a, narrow banking system, those narrow banks themselves can hold stable coins, could hold US Terra, for example, or, or others, depending on how they assess the risk. And then there's ways that they can plug into the decentralized networks that, you know, you can buy Luna if you want to speculate on Terra as a stable coin. So like there are there are ways that they plug into the decentralized, they could theoretically plug into the decentralized ecosystem to um to kind of bolster the the whole environment. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's interesting to think about. They don't talk about that kind of stuff in there. I mean, that's just us trying to figure out how do we, how do we place our bets to, you know, benefit from, from a better system. Well, and so this is, this kind of feeds into uh, whatever, at the end of these chapters, I always list like areas out to explore, just usually topics I want to 
go off and kind of follow up on. And my big one, which I think I was talking to you before we started this call, is where the Fed's at on their own central bank digital currency. Because the you know Powell's been talking about it. It's it's there. There's plans. I know there's explicit plans. I don't know what those are. To at some point try to release their own and. Um, yeah, I just I just want to get a sense of where how they view it, like setting it up, even if it's just their plan. Yeah, like what, the structure that it would take would be. And, and I, I guess I'm interested in that as well, Jake. Did you did they, did they mention what it would be backed by, or have you seen that even, or is it is that not even Sorry. discussed? What is what, what, what would, would be back in digital currency? Like would it would it be the, the, he, he's talking about the, oh, C, the yeah. CB, the, the central bank? Yeah, if, if it were to be done by our, you know, United States by the Fed. If this, yeah, if the central bank issue. Oh, I, I mean, it would yeah, be, What would the central bank token be backed be, by? The central bank, in the same way okay, that the dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, so basically, they would just mint it through this digital currency instead of through the traditional treasury, where they print off dollars. Yeah, exactly, right. and, and that's. That's always been kind of at the extreme end on one side, and I, I think I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I, there was this chapter outlined some of the huge costs and burdens that would entail on the Fed, and why that doesn't really seem like the yeah. most practical way to go about it. That they're going to need some kind of agent, whether they actually continue to work through the you know fractional reserve system, I, I don't know, but uh, very curious on. Because, yeah, because them issuing it themselves, they would have to host accounts directly with the Fed, and it just seems like a cluster. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine where that had caused some issues. But the idea, though, that you would have a, a a digital ledger for tracking, you know, money and and, and uh, the minting of, of all this, I think, would make everything so much easier to, to follow and track and get a better idea of where we actually sit as a country. Cause one thing that's actually funny is that if, if you were to ask, you know, an auditor or someone to audit the feds books, they can't, it's just not possible. It's too, <laughs> it's too widespread. It's too big. It's too intertwined. No one really knows where everything's going. Um, a ledger could really help to mm-hmm. fix that. <laughs> I would bet my life that if the fed did directly host and make their own central bank digital currency their ledger would still be entirely private but you're right at the very least it would exist and auditors might have a chance to make some headway where they haven't before and i mean you hear these stories about the militaries i think probably the best example just because their budget's so large um they kind of just lose track of pretty big sums of money sometimes and uh so Yeah. yeah no that's a good point yeah, I mean, I think the Fed is going to have to do something like that because if they want to stay, if America wants to stay globally competitive, like I said earlier, I mean, China's going to really be able, I'm worried that they can significantly disrupt the role of the dollar as a reserve currency. And they're going to use the, the, the benefits or the, the good parts, <laughs> blanking on the words, but like, the digital infrastructure offers significant advantages when you are a central planner of these coins. And so if, if, you know, I think we do need to be aware, like China's going full steam ahead with theirs and they're going to be able to leverage that in all of the countries that they're building roads and factories and the 
the chemical mi- and the mining plants and everything and all the rare earth stuff they're doing. I mean, they're really going to be able to, to uh, you know, influence the world. Well, and, and they have so much control over their, their everything in their country that, you know, if they start to accumulate a lot of digital currencies and then create their own, they're going to have significant influence on those markets and can almost kind of start to manipulate not i'm not going to act like our you know we already don't have a somewhat manipulated economy global economy but it'll almost give them even more leverage to to have a bigger role in kind of shaping the economy how they how they see fit right oh yeah i mean let's let's be very clear that there is a significant difference in the amount of central planning between china and us i mean there might be faint yes. shades of gray that look similar but to me actually i think this represents uh i don't know what metaphor you want to use like the devil's bargain maybe but china obviously wants to control everything with their central committee uh Vigi and like at this 2025 closest um advisors um and this could allow them to do that even more than they're already doing it but that's the inherent difficulty with central planning it's almost like the lack of this much control in my mind, might have helped them by requiring them to allow certain markets to just operate normally because they their reach simply cannot extend that far. And if this technology allows them to actually pull every single lever in the economy, I think it's just a loaded gun that you end up... It just seems to me what, like they're going to shoot themselves in the foot before they achieve some kind of perfect pinnacle, um, you know, centrally planned dominance and overtake us. Yeah. I hope you're right. Yeah, I I generally agree with you on that. It's just it is kind of interesting because there is real concern amongst people that they are they are kind of already um, kind of having their way with our economy through Bitcoin. So I mean that's one way where you know maybe that's not true yet, or or maybe it's just not true at all. But the idea that you know if they're accumulating enough Bitcoin where they can start to affect that market, and as we know, it's becoming more and more popular, a growing topic is crypto, but mainly Bitcoin. In the United States, you're going to see a lot of average people who maybe don't. I mean, we're seeing Bitcoin ETFs added. So you're starting to see the, the average American is going to start having exposure to Bitcoin. Um, and if they do have manipulative, you know, powers over the prices because of their, you know, control, the supply. That's concerning to me yeah yeah i mean like they are to jake's point shooting themselves in the foot i mean by banning the mining i mean because so many of the miners have shifted to other countries i mean look if you really want to be controlling the the world through digital currency you shouldn't be banning the industries from your country and so that's where this is there's a good there's a good case to be made here why that there's they're not that China isn't going to be able to control this future because of how they're treating their entrepreneurial community and the way that their government is taking over a lot of the bigger and successful companies. So that- we as a country in the U.S. really need to be on it and take advantage of what's going on because this is how we stay competitive. It's it's literally the you know the future of the digital age, the future of the internet, and so. We need to we need to focus on that. I mean, and this is a little tinfoil hat moment here, but like, how do we, you know, with the way China's acted in the past, how do we know they they weren't just taking over these mining farms and basically bringing it all back to the the state, rather than having their actual citizens or the company mining it? So 
in, in a way, they may have just banned it from the private citizens. And now the state basically is collecting 100% of the Bitcoin mined in the country. Well, I, I don't know that to be true. Know, this is tinfoil hat. I'm just I saying. think they've been able to confirm the, where the hash rates generated. Okay. I, I know I've, I might be off, but I've read and I've heard some things in different podcasts like that. The, it is indeed shifting that the, okay. the, 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 the miners have been moving physical units. Now I don't know offhand to what degree, but um, yeah. this yeah. is a little bit beyond the, Scope, yeah. And I, I was just kind of tinfoil hat there, so we don't have to expand on that much. But it's, it's just like interesting. <laughs> that it's, important. it's important. Of you know, I just I'm sometimes concerned that if if you know in these communist countries, Russia being one as well, because I know that Putin has an incredible amount of of cash and money that they could really do a lot to manipulate digital economies if they wanted. But I mean, again, I think a lot of people are, are trying to keep their eyes on this. It's just. It's always a concern I have, especially with something like Bitcoin that's so widely known now and becoming more adopted, especially in the Western uh, Western Hemisphere. The United States is just getting on board, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thankfully, you know, even if they did achieve some kind of cryptocurrency supremacy, geopolitics, there's there's still a lot more that goes into it. I mean, it's there's still yeah. a balance of power there that that uh i like where we're standing but um i don't know it's like you said it's it's a lot of speculation yes very much i will i want to make that very clear that was speculation on my end <laughs> do not tell your friends that you heard that from me good stuff well uh we've been talking for a while i would love to just mention to the live listeners feel free to join the queue if you want to chime in on anything um Jake, I don't know. I wanted to add one more point about something on the the KYC AML thing that I think that Max yeah. is going to appreciate here while I'm sitting next to him. But they talk about the need to have this identity, the crypto identity, which is on the surface pseudonymous, where it's going to feel when you're participating that you don't really know who else it is, but it's backwards it's reversibly identifiable where if if need be people could be identified if they wanted to like sign up and so it immediately made me think of secret network nfts Mm -hmm. that you can click on and off if you want to share certain metadata with your wallet i mean that technology to be able to achieve that is indeed being uh created now so there's ways that this this can work there because if you theoretically had a smart contract that handle all of that computation to verify who these people are, you know, maybe you run 10 or 20 or 30 smart contracts on some chain that doesn't exist yet to achieve that perfect AML and KYC knowledge. That's theoretically possible to to achieve that kind of operational efficiency. So we're not there yet. I don't know if we're like five years, 10 years, 20 years, but the the Federal Reserve could theoretically have that to lean on someday. So. And to your point, the technology is interesting and in how it works where the input is encrypted and so is the output. So you really the the only person who knows the what's in these messages or transactions are literally the person who sent it, the person who's going to receive it, and then the the validator itself that's actually validating the transaction does not like the person running that note cannot see the transaction. All that they can see is that 
through the hash, it's verified that it was correct. So the information stays private through the whole process. But so you can choose. You can still verify you can, that it's You true. can choose based on the way the tech is. I mean, my understanding is that if some further development down the road, like you will be able to customize what you share and what you don't and who you share that with. So that's still so that can all be programmed in. Yes. And, and in fact, they already have it to an extent where if I provide a viewing key, you can see any any transaction and the details within it. But I have to consent as the person who sent it. So that's where the regulatory compliance comes in. I can use this ledger to have private transactions. They won't know the wallet. They won't know the amounts transferring, but they'll know that it occurred and that it was verified by a smart contract. Um, and then on top of that, um, once it's, once someone, let's say, comes and says, Hey, we need to see this transaction occurred. You need to prove it. Or let's say you're subpoenaed for information. Right. You can provide that viewing key and now they have access to, that, to those details. So you're not, you're not in a situation where everything's, you know, in the black box and, and untraceable, uh, which I know is a lot of people's concern. It's it's very much traceable and verifiable if the person consents, which is how information and privacy should work. Um, you should have to consent to to sharing those details. Now, if you're legally obligated, then they'll have to go through legal channels to subpoena you, and in that case, you'd be breaking laws if you didn't give out that viewing key. That's a personal decision by that person. They think going to jail is worth keeping their privacy. That's 100% their right. But this type of technology allows you to make that decision yourself and not leave it up to uh, a third party. Yeah, I mean, the book in its uh, suggestion for a system says that anonymity between users is pretty much a given, that that should be a part of the system. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, let's be honest, the federal government's biggest fear is complete anonymity in payments, the idea that money could move around and they wouldn't know who's giving it to who. So even if you talk about like any system that's designed, the, the federal government is only going to allow one that allows them to take a peek regardless of your consent or not. Like you said, there are, there are ways that you could do this to mm -hmm. prevent abuse. And I think you have to the Dylan, you had mentioned earlier, one of the uh, moral hazards post posing this book was, yeah, a, a government that is all seeing and then is tempted to be all controlling. So, yeah, I, a technology that only allows a viewing key under certain circumstances, maybe when the courts authorize the viewing key. I, I think all of that's a, a worthwhile. Uh, but um, ultimately. Well, well, yeah, because, Jay, I mean, if, if you wanted to opt into the narrow bank and join and deposit into it, you you could. You could do that upon creation, right? Like when you upon upon sign up, you could consent to the sharing of the key. So then, if if that institution were ever to get subpoenaed, they would be forced to comply. And so, I mean, we're talking in all theoretics here because none of this is possible at scale today. This this couldn't exist with the current tech, but it's proof of concept and prototypes, like. Mm -hmm. and the idea, we can get there. Yeah. And the idea that you would give a third party access to your to your key or having dual or like a multi-sig for, for this type of stuff, not even multi-sig, where each individual party could decide at any time. I could see where that could work for these type of situations where you need to that third party needs to have access to your information. You're trusting them. So you give them your viewing key. But again, you're making that decision. And that's the what matters to me, that you're deciding when 
you're giving up that information. I know that's in a perfect world. So, yeah. Well, I mean, you would decide when you sign well, I mean, do you, let's be honest, design your perfect system and uh, <laughs> I'll put my money on the NSA eventually getting their hands on it, <laughs> regardless yeah. of court orders. <laughs> well, and that's Fair. what they say. They Fair say enough. everything right now is private encrypted because right now we don't have the technology to decrypt it, but eventually we will. So as computing processing power gets better and better and higher and higher, we'll eventually have to come up with new ways to encrypt stuff. But I think we're, we're moving fast enough yeah. with technology that we won't have to worry about that. Um, but that's, again, me just kind of hoping and praying and hoping everything goes as I hope it does. Yeah. Well, hey, this has been a really good discussion. I know we're all running on schedule. Um, any departing thoughts, Jake? I mean, this has been a really good talk. Uh, I think next week we're going to try to cover the next chapter, which is on stable networks, more from a network design. And it's it's a little short, so we might be able to go with two next week, but we'll just have to see. Wait, what's um? Hold on, we got uh, stable networks, and then toward the ecosystem of trusted data and AI, chapter ten. Ooh, yeah, okay. We'll talk about that. Maybe we'll get to next week, but uh, we'll see. No, I mean, um, like I said, I uh, I think I'm about to do a deep dive into the Fed and central bank digital currency. I want to see where we're at, where they're what they're thinking. Um, because I mean, I, I feel like the last time I saw this, they were planning to roll something out in like 2023 or something. That's that number sticking out in my mind. So, um, yeah. What about you? Any thoughts for you? Yeah. Well, not really. Um, I just <laughs> want to add that there's another book I found today called Cryptography Apocalypse, the Pre- preparing for the day when quantum computing breaks today's crypto. It's published by Wiley, and we'll have to do another series on that. Uh, I just found that book today, and it's exactly what we just commented on a minute ago about eventually being able, you know, quantum mm. computing as a risk to the crypto asset class. So just uh, hinting at that, you know, we'll probably need to read that one someday. God, yeah, I forgot that between that and like um, gene editing, we have like these bizarre, like super future technologies that are just always bubbling under the surface. So I know quantum computing. Yeah, that's what I can never really get my head around. But I that, think it's just going to be beyond me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I can't get into the details because I just don't know them. But the the idea that there's just so much computing power that it can just run so many calculations so fast that you can't encrypt things is yeah, it's hard concept to understand. Well, yeah, that book it so it's it's trying to give you information and advice to prepare for that day. So trying to like make sure you're ready for it because it does seem inevitable. And if you have what do you do, just like cross your fingers and hope that you survive it. I mean, Every day that I wake up, that's what I do. In, in my opinion, I feel <laughs> that um, we'll have improved the technology by the time that time comes that it won't, it will no longer, we'll find different ways that computing power can't figure out. And, and I, I don't so. know I hope so. how that will be, but at the end of the day, we are the ones who are developing the technology. So someone will see the monetary value of creating something that cannot be disrupted by it. So I have faith in humanity. Is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I like to think I'm an optimist too. Yeah, I'm a I'm a very big optimist, as you guys can tell. And I need Dylan around to keep me. I try to be. Um, I try to be. But you guys keep me grounded too. So, hey, all right, this has been great. Let's uh, let's chat soon, gentlemen. Yeah, sounds good.
Take care. See you guys.